Welcome to a bonus edition of the Wise Athletes Podcast. In episode 50, we spoke to George Dallum, former USA Triathlon National Team Coach and current Professor of Exercise Science at CSU Pueblo about his personal and professional experience with the adaptation to nasal breathing for better health and athletic performance. That talk ran long, unfortunately, at 1.5 hours, so I have cut that down to this condensed version of 50 minutes. No, there was nothing unimportant to cut out, so the longer version is the one I recommend. But this bonus edition is for those of you who are time-constrained and looking for just the most important bits. The commonly held myths about breathing that lead us astray, the science behind how breathing through the nose helps us to be healthy in multiple ways, and George's advice on how to adapt to nasal breathing during exercise. George says it takes between six weeks and six months to fully adapt, but even along the way, you will start to receive benefits, including better filtering of particles and viruses, less damage to the lungs from breathing unfiltered and untreated air, less energy spent on breathing by extracting more oxygen per breath, improved stress management and sleep, a stronger diaphragm for stronger breathing, as well as for better posture and core stability. Okay, let's pick up the conversation where Dr. Dallum begins to talk about his interest in nasal breathing. The why the nasal breathing thing, from the time I was little, I had all that upper respiratory stuff that swimmers get, right? Uh, sinus mm. infections, uh, you know, pneumonia by the time I was 12. Really? You know, I continue to have those kinds of problems throughout my athletic career all the way up to about 15 years ago. Even, you know, as a college professor, still doing triathlon, I frequent sinus infections, yeah. bronchitis, pneumonia, et cetera. So that's not super uncommon among endurance athletes, right? Sure. And, uh, you know, I tried the conventional wisdom in, in Texas in the 80s. I remember one doc said to me that you have uh, asthma. Put me on theophylline, which is a maintenance drug of that era. They don't use it anymore. Uh, the reason I use it is because it creates a lot of anxiety and sympathetic activation. I Within two days, I just stopped taking it because I didn't like feeling that way. And yeah. I didn't really have asthma, right? I had what we now call exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. But at that time, that idea was just formulating, right? Okay. So long and short of it, uh, maybe 15 years ago, I'm home on a weekend. I'm not going out because I've got a bad sinus infection and I'm just sort of unhappy. You know, I, I love to ride my bike. I love to go out and run, swim, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, so I got on the internet, uh, got out of the box, as we say, and started <laughs> investigating the wacko ideas. Yeah. Uh, and one of the wacko ideas is that, uh, and I could tell you about this post, it's still there, a guy back in New Jersey who coaches high school kids in cross country and he's like an engineer he, he wrote this long post about how his kids all ran barefoot and breathed through their nose john rauchy i think his name is and it's a very well-written intelligent post so that you know that meant something to me right he was very logical yeah. about how he explained why he thought it was useful so i thought well hell you know i have nothing to lose i'm just going to try this at the same time uh oprah had made neti pots or sinus rinsing also very popular and so I had really not known about that, but I read about it that day, and I thought, I'm going to try this too. And I just started doing that, okay. using an pod every day, and I tried to do whatever I could breathing nasally, which wasn't much at first, right? At first, it was right. just the beginnings of my warm-up. You know, within a year, I was fully adapted to that. Um, I ran some PRs. I ran, I, I ran a, a mile PR in a corporate cup event over the last 10 years. So you were faster yeah. nasal breathing than you had been mouth breathing. That's exactly right. Not a lot faster. I think I had been probably around 548. And at this point, I'm like 48 years old. I'm not a great runner. Uh, and I ran a 532. I hadn't run a 532 since I was really young, right, since I was in college. Uh, and then uh, on a, I'm a better cyclist on a 20K sort of hilly route where I've been 
writing at about 31, 32 minutes, I wrote 29 minutes, breathing nasally the whole time. So at the time, I thought, okay, this certainly is making me feel better, but it also seems to be helping me. Now, at the time, I couldn't say it was because of the nasal breathing. It might have been because I wasn't getting sick anymore. That was the other outcome. Yeah, you were training better. From the time that I started to do this, I just stopped getting sick. And I went fully five years without anything, right, without any kind of cold upper respiratory infection of any kind. Hmm. And, you know, every once in a while I have some sort of minor thing, but it's I'm very infrequent now to get sick as a result of doing this, which was the first thing that helped me to be more consistent in training. That was part of why I might have performed better. But now, you know, downstream, as we've studied this more, as I've become really interested in it academically, we understand that there's probably a mechanism there that might have been helping as well. So, Fantastic. Let's get into this nasal breathing. Basically, if you have any understanding of anatomy at all, there's an old, old axiom that's commonly you know, stated, which is that you know, your mouth is for eating, your nose is for breathing, right? If you understand your anatomy, if you've had even the most rudimentary course in anatomy, you understand that all of the conditioning of our air, all the apparatus for that anatomically, it's in the nasal passage. Our mouth doesn't have that kind of apparatus, right? Our mouth is designed for being able to masticate, chew food. We can breathe through our mouth, but we're not designed for breathing through our mouth. So if you think about it that way, I have a simple rule, which is that you should breathe through your nose whenever possible. Now, as a kind of a pool guy, right, as a guy who uh, operated, uh, you know, along with coaching and swimming, you know, I had occasions to manage pools too. You know, the key thing is keep the water filtering, right? We have this filtration system. You turn those filters off for some reason, within like a day, your water has gone completely south and you have to replace it, right? So, you know, the nose is how we filter what moves in and out of our body. Just like the water that moves around and circulates in the pool goes through filters, the air that we breathe in and out can go through filters if we use our nose. And in doing that, we preserve the function of our body, right? And when we don't do that, we start to immediately damage our body, right? We have immediate damage from breathing through our mouths. And so when we start to think about it that way, and then, you know, my simple rule is you should breathe through your nose whenever you can, right? Whether that's while we're sitting here talking, which makes it tough because you're, you're talking, so you tend to breathe through your mouth, uh, or whether we're, you know, exercising or whether we're under stress at, at all times. You should, sleeping. Right. You should sleeping. Absolutely. Sleeping hugely important. Um, you should always try to breathe through your nose. And that includes exercise, right? There's, there's nothing that changes about this whole concept of filtering the air when we exercise, right? We still need to do that. In fact, you can make a good argument that we need to do it more because we're breathing so much. Yeah, so much more air. That's right. You need to filter it even more, right? So the, the answer, I guess, if I'm drawing a bow around what you've said, is that nasal breathing is not a hack designed to trick the body into performing better. Nasal breathing is how you're supposed to breathe. I absolutely agree. So we're not talking about the benefits of nasal breathing. We ought to be talking about the detriments of not breathing the way we're designed to breathe. You know, that idea of normal, right? We tend to think, well, oral breathing or breathing from my mouth when we exercise is normal. So that word normal means what occurs the most. And that's absolutely true, right? Most people breathe through their mouths. When they exercise, but normal is not the same thing as natural or good. Yeah, yeah. Right? What's good, what, what, what's natural is for us to use our breathing filtering apparatus. So breathing through our nose. Okay. So that's the high level picture. I think that we, we ought to slay some myths about breathing. 
here are some, when I need to breathe, when I feel a need to breathe, it's because I need more oxygen. Yes. A lot of people understand breathing that way. They associate the idea with breathing more, with getting more oxygen. Um, you know, you can go back to Guyton's original textbook of work physiology from the 50s. Even by then, we understood two substances in the blood tend to drive our need to breathe, you know, CO2 and O2. But even in the 50s, we understood that CO2 was more powerful. It actually makes sense, too, because, you know, if we stop breathing, CO2 immediately starts to rise. So we immediately start to sense the urgency. You know, if you stop breathing, O2 in your body won't have dropped precipitously for minutes, right? And so it makes more sense that our responsiveness to breathing comes from CO2. We've long understood this. We've demonstrated it, you know, many, many times in the, in the scientific literature. So what happens when we feel like we're not getting a fare isn't necessarily, it might be because there's some lack of oxygen, but it might not be. It might simply be that some condition is causing CO2 levels in the arterial blood to be higher than normal. And we sense that through what's called air hunger in the sciences, right? The sensation of not that I'm working hard, but that I'm not getting enough air for what I'm doing. That can happen to you even at rest. Like if you've ever tried, uh, you know, yogic breathing and tried to slow your breathing way, way down, probably you feel some air yeah. hunger because you're simply not breathing quickly. Or, you know, I do this in my class all the time. Where the students basically do a little test where they just stop breathing and we wait to see the first sensation of air hunger. The average time is like eight or 10 seconds, yeah. right? Within eight or 10 seconds on average, and they're young, healthy college students in exercise, um, they feel some urgency to breathe. So, you know, once we get that, what stops people when they want to try this is they'll go out and say, okay, I heard this uh, talking head with a white beard uh, <laughs> talk about, you know, how I should breathe my nose. So I'm going to go out and try this. Even like really well-educated people will do yeah. this, right? I had a reviewer on a paper do this. I'm just going to go out and see, see if I can do it. So they go out, they try to run as fast as they normally run. They feel this like extreme suffocation, air hunger, and they go, that's crazy. Can't do that. Sure. Well, what they're feeling for the most part is this high level of CO2. We have to get into some discussion about why that occurs in nasal breathing, but that doesn't mean you're not oxygenating yourself necessarily as much. There are conditions where you're not, but then with adaptation, that kind of goes yeah. away, both the sensation of not getting off air and the ability right. to oxygenate. And we're going to get more into life. that because that is central to this whole idea of yes. being able to adapt to nasal breathing. Uh, okay. The next myth I think is that CO2 is bad and I, I want to get rid of it. So we tend to think of CO2 as bad and, you know, even in physiology textbooks at some level, people will sort of describe it that way because we have to remove it. But the reality is that all substances in the body, you know, even oxygen, have to be at homeostasis, right? They have there's some range where they're effective in the body, where they can carry out the roles, and, and then there are ranges where they're not effective, where they can even be damaging. For instance, you know, oxygen, which we consider the light, the life-saving, you know, molecule, right? If if you inspire 100% oxygen, you start to create rapid rates of perioxidation on your cells and destabilize them. It's toxic, right? which is why we never inspire 100% oxygen. Divers never, for instance, take in 100% oxygen. Uh, and so uh, uh, CO2, because it's something produced in metabolism, it's actually, along with water, the end product of the basic breakdown of all the molecules that we consume for, for energy, glucose, you know, carbohydrate, fat, protein, uh, is something that continually wants to get out of homeostasis, so we have to keep removing it. But we maintain this amount of CO2 that's really critical, right? It's critical to all kinds of functions in the body. 
you could argue it's one of the most critical molecules in the body to normal functioning. It has a really profound influence on our functioning when it gets out of those normal ranges. So because we remove it is because it's produced by metabolism, not because it's somehow bad. Every molecule potentially is bad, right? right? CO2 is no no worse or no better than oxygen. It's just produced internally, whereas oxygen is something we consume and continually then, you know, uh, utilize. Uh, Okay. So the next myth is that breathing faster brings in more oxygen. Yeah. So, you know, breathing is a thing like most things in the world. Uh, A good analogy would be riding a bike. I know you like to race and I know probably some of your your readers race where there's an optimal sort of rate at which we do that, right? A a gear is the analogy I like to use on a bike. You know, if I throw you in 120 inch gear where you're pedaling about 40 RPMs, you're probably going to ride a time trial slower. And if I put you into like a 70 inch gear where you're pedaling and you you over pedal like you can't control the pedals, yeah. you're also going to ride slower. You need that optimal range, probably 80 to yeah. 100 RPM, right? So breathing's the same, right? There's this optimal range where we optimize the the end game of breathing, which is to try to bring oxygen in and take CO2 out. We can breathe too much, right? And we can also breathe too little. Well, the idea is to find that middle ground. So here's a really easy to sort of understand common wisdom. Does it make sense that the, the rate at which we would breathe through our mouth, which is not really designed for breathing, would be better than the rate at which we breathe through the nose, which is designed for breathing, right? It kind of makes sense that the way that we breathe through the nose should, should be what we shoot for, not the way that we breathe through the mouth. Mm-hmm. Our mouth does allow us to, when we breathe orally, to greatly increase ventilation. But what we know is, in effect, what we're doing is hyperventilating. We're breathing more than is actually necessary. And we don't, that doesn't necessarily improve our oxygenation. That's where the physiology gets complicated, right? Because oxygenation is just not, is not just about how much oxygen you bring to the lung. It has to do with how effectively that oxygen diffuses into the blood, how effectively the blood can carry it around the body, which has something to do with how the, the blood vessels dilate, how effectively it gets into the cell. The end game is how much oxygen we get to the cell. Right? right, to make energy. Right. So one of the simplest things about nasal breathing is it, it moves us to the right gear because we're using the apparatus designed for breathing, right? Right. Okay, next myth is that breathing, the act of breathing, doesn't cost me much energy. So that's really interesting, right? Uh a big area that's exploded in the last 10 years is around the idea of just how much energy we actually use just to breathe. So if you think about that, you know, most of us know about the diaphragm. And when we're at rest, you know, we primarily contract the diaphragm that uh, opens up the lung a little bit, pressure drops, air comes in, and then we let yeah. it relax. But once we start exercising, we start to use more and more muscles, the intercostals, the, all the chest muscles, the abdomen. And when people are doing something like running in a 5K, right, where they're ventilating or breathing very heavily, yeah. uh, probably as much as 15% of the total energy they're expending is being expended by those breathing muscles, which are, again, just skeletal muscles like our other skeletal muscles, right? Yeah. So they require oxygen and energy as well. Yeah, they're using up some of that oxygen that they're bringing in. That's exactly right. To not consider their oxygen cost, Right which is no longer the case. In science, we get this. In fact, now, a very popular approach to try to improve uh, the ability of uh, of athletes who are already well-trained otherwise is to train their breathing muscles specifically. To not consider how much oxygen they use and how much energy they require, you know, you're missing the boat, right? They they require a big percentage of what we use. Yeah, and so a 10% 
improvement is going to show up in the equation. It's you're going to notice it. Absolutely. That's great. All right. So hopefully people, they're intrigued to understand, well, what is true and how can I get at some of that? So this is the long answer. And Joe knows to cut me off because I he, he's already figured out that I'll keep talking and talking. But there's a number of basic functions. One of the first ones is not obvious, right? We all know about conditioning and we could call uh, everything else will talk about conditioning. But the first that's so less obvious is that by drawing air through our nose and by going through this conditioning or filtering apparatus, we actually increase the resistance to that air, right? Uh, to, yeah. uh, we increase it's harder the to the pull the air in. It's harder to pull the air in. And so, you know, when you look at that on the surface, right away you go, well, that must make it harder to breathe nasally. It is harder to take a breath. You have to apply more forces. But in fact, that's a good thing, right? Here's why it's a good thing. Um, if you've ever damaged your shoulder, you probably know when they give you rehab, they have you do this rotator cuff exercise with a band, very low resistance, because that optimizes the recruitment of the little muscles underneath that stabilize your humerus. Mm. And then later on, you know, you start using more weight. Eventually, the bigger muscles come into play because the forces are higher and they start to recruit the big muscles. Yeah. So the lung is much like that, right? When we breathe at very low resistance, we don't really need to recruit our diaphragm as much. We preferentially recruit smaller ancillary muscles in the, in the upper chest. So we breathe from the upper chest more, more readily. As forces get a little higher, we start to more effectively recruit the diaphragm, right? It requires a certain amount of force that the body has essentially evolved to expect because we're supposed to breathe through our nose again. Yeah. And when we don't do that, we tend to sacrifice the use of the diaphragm. That's hugely important, right? When you breathe in a shallow way with these extra muscles and don't use your diaphragm very effectively, you know, air doesn't penetrate the lung as much. And that has to do with the ability of the gases to then diffuse without getting complicated. So right away, this thing that's a huge thing among people who are interested in fitness, what we call diaphragmic breathing, yeah. that just happens automatically by nasal breathing. You, you, you know, you can pretty much stop teaching it, right? you know, teach somebody to breathe nasally and they'll breathe diaphragmically, right? Yeah. So that's a huge, important difference with lots of implications. Uh, It has implications for your ability to move generally because the diaphragm is such an important stabilizer of the total body because it's centrally located, right? So the the, the powerful, maybe the most powerful core muscle we have. Uh, Hmm. Then we get to the conditioning pieces, right? Which most of us understand on some level. When we draw the air in through our nose, you know, the first thing we do is slow it down through a real narrowing. You know, we call that the external um, valve, which is basically the opening of the nose and the small vestibule or initial cavity. And then it accelerates against these things called turbinates, right, which are basically like rocks in a stream. They're, they're irregularities in the structure of the nose that force it to bounce around, right? So that's a good thing, right? Because when that air is bouncing around, it can mix with all the mucus we produce in there. And that allows two things to happen. It allows that air to become humidified with water and warm by coming in close contact with the surfaces of the nose where the mucus is, is, is secreted. And it also allows us to capture things, you know, what we generally call particulate matter, stuff that's in the air. Now, right away, all of us know about smoke, right? Where I am, the thing every single day, I'm in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, yeah. the thing every single day is, how smoky is it, right? Especially during the summer. But now, literally, we think about that almost all year long because of forest fires all around us. So if I have um, smoke in the air, I don't want that going to my lung. So if I'm breathing through my nose, right, this mucus interaction allows that to be captured to a much greater degree. Um, We also think about things like viruses and bacteria. Now, all of us get that now with COVID, right? 
I think we better understand respiratory uh, disease transmission so much as a result of the intensive uh, public science that's going into COVID. And we get that, you know, the old ideas that we're getting sick primarily from the things that we touch and put in our mouth, we, we recognize that that's not the main mechanism. Theoretically, that's possible, but mostly we breathe in aerosols, right? And they get caught in our mucus. And if our, our body uh, is able to deal with that successfully, we don't get sick. And if it's not, right, if it overwhelms us, then we get sick. So, you know, that's the second big thing, these pathogens, bacteria, which are not too likely in the air, but, but um, viruses in particular, which are very likely circulating all the time. This is our basic way to, to, to work with that. Uh, and um, so we've got the idea of conditioning air in terms of humidity. Uh, we've uh, got the idea of conditioning air in terms of temperature. And we've got the idea of removing these things, particulate matters, whether they be organic things like viruses or whether they be, um, I don't know, actually, I can't remember now if a virus is considered technically organic. You know, all those things are damaging to our lungs, potentially, right? The, the disease we call emphysema, it's basically you just getting too much particulate matter, typically smoke, directly smoking. Think about how you smoke, though. You inhale through your mouth, right? It goes directly to your lung. And then you end up with this debilitating disease that no one should ever have. You know, we call it yeah. emphysema. Lung cancer, right? Same idea, carcinogens, but which we inhale, make it to the lung and stimulate cell mutagenic change, and bam, we have cancer. We don't want any of that to happen to us. So, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize, and I'll struggle for his name right now, the Nobel Prize in physiology, I believe, maybe 10, 12 years ago, went to a group of scientists who had discovered the role of something called nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. And recently, one of those scientists said, you know what? And he said this publicly in a, in a little paper, a little position paper. He said, the number one thing we could do to protect ourselves from COVID would simply be to breathe through our nose. So then you go to exercise. You're out there, you know, ventilating at like 5, 10, 15 times normal. And you're also out there where there's cars and there's, there's people. You know, that's the most important time to be using this mechanism. Yeah. To try to protect yourself. So here's a, a conundrum, right? A problem. I, again, I'm doing a study right now where it's my regular students. None of them are adapted yeah. to nasal breathing. They do a really low level exercise. We see sort of two patterns of response. I, you know, this work's not done yet, not published. Probably years before it's published, but because we're doing it like semester to semester. But here's this thing: some of the students, even at a very light level of work, and very typical would be about 100 watts on a bike. Joe could relate to that, right? You know, beginning warm up, even for a low level rider. Um, when they're cycling at about 100 watts, some of them will already be feeling some air hunger when they breathe nasally. We're, we're basically comparing nasal breathing to oral breathing. Uh, when they breathe nasally, they'll feel some air hunger and they experience some anxiety as a result of that because there's nothing more powerful to create anxiety or fear in a human being than the stimulus that says you're not breathing enough. Oh, yeah. Suffocating. Horrible. Yeah. It's the most primitive instinct that, and, and reflexive response we have. So in their case, everything deranges, right? They ventilate more breathing nasally. Um, you know, their lactate levels are higher, indicating that they're not getting enough air, uh, enough oxygen, and they're actually bourgeois on anaerobic metabolism. Some of the students can do that light level of work, breathing nasally, not feel that air hunger, uh, and they have all the classic responses that we see in people who are adapted, which, of course, we've studied and published that work as well. Um, their ventilation is a little lower. They're using a little less oxygen. They're more economic. Um, uh, you know, I don't have good data yet on HRV because it's pretty variable, but my suggestion is probably that their HRVs are a little higher, uh, indicating more, a little more parasympathetic level. All the stuff seems to go in the right way 
to, to a great degree is a function of the first level at which you try to do this. Did it go past where you're ready for it, mm-hmm. where you feel air hunger? Or is it at a level like when you say go for a walk after dinner where you can breathe through your nose and not even think about it and feel fine? So the trick oftentimes is to find your way to just the threshold point where your body can do this nasal breathing. You might have some suggestion of air hunger and then start working yeah. there. Right. And, and if you don't, if you go further, it turns the whole experience into something horrible. Right. I mean, literally, you know, you feel like you're yeah. suffocating. Again, I want to reinforce that by starting there, you adapt. You adapt in two primary ways. Yeah. And uh, those sensations change. And before you know it, you can do more and more work. And as I've illustrated myself, both in a case study and a, and a group study, at, at some point, you can then do as much work breathing nasally as you can orally and not feel necessarily any of that air hunger beyond what yeah. you would feel trying to do max work orally. Well, that's great. And we're going to actually finish this up by going through this process of how do you become adapted to do this? But the question is, well, how the heck can you breathe slower when you're exercising hard? Well, the answer is nasal breathing allows you to get more oxygen per breath. So you need fewer breaths. Is that right? That's correct. So, you know, in all the projects that have directly compared nasal oral breathing, most of which are done in people who are not adapted to nasal breathing, uh, one of, uh, my project was done in people who were adapted to it. We see this idea of ventilatory efficiency, right? Uh, what that means is that we measure how much you ventilate, how much air you breathe, right? We typically we refer to that as per minute, liters per minute. And we measure something called VO2 or the amount of oxygen you consume. And in every one of those studies, what we see is that when you're breathing nasally, you ventilate less for the amount of oxygen you consume. We literally calculate a ratio called the ventilatory equivalent, which just takes the ventilation, uh, uh, divides it by the VO2. And when the number is bigger, what it means as a ratio is that you're breathing more to get the same oxygenation, right? So, you know, one of the principal advantages of nasal breathing is it's more efficient. It allows us to extract the same amount of oxygen, but do less breathing to yeah. do so. And we could get into a discussion of why, but a lot of that's theoretical and it's pretty involved, but we absolutely know that that happens, right? Yeah. Well, even just your own experience is that you can perform at the same level. In fact, you've even said PRs. So even at a higher level, breathing through your nose, which by definition means you're breathing less. That's exactly right. I'm, I'm actually, if I measure it, uh, I'm actually breathing less. Say I'm running at a pace of seven minutes per mile, right? Um, I'm actually ventilating literally a quarter less. So that means that, remember, we talked earlier on about the idea that about 15% of our energy running hard like that would go to breathing only. So now I'm reducing that by a quarter, right? I'm reducing that 15% where now it's more like 12% of my energy is going to that. And in our study, we've been able to demonstrate that that resulted in net economy gain, meaning the overall production of energy when you're when you're uh, running, breathing nasally is actually reduced in, in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. So, you know, when I was national team coach, I remember one of the interns at one point brought me this study about weight training and how it improved economy and performance in runners, which was it was the first study to really show us that. And that was an open question back in those days in the 90s, should should runners, particularly weight training. Uh, and so, you know, that opened my eyes to this idea 
And of course, now all elite runners and all elite triathletes all do extensive weight training to try to get that little economy improvement because they can perform better. Well, we're talking about creating something very comparable simply by adapting to a different approach to breathing where you don't have to breathe as much. So you don't have to use as much energy for breathing to produce the same external work outcome, the same pace of running or power output on your bicycle, et cetera. So, uh, you know, that's a potential performance improvement. We have no study that's directly looked at performance yet on this. In fact, there's, there's only about five or six studies really looking at this in any legitimate experimental design and, and like 20 total studies overall, even looking at nasal breathing out of the hundreds of thousands of exercise physiology studies we have, you know, maybe even more than that now. So there's limited science looking at this, which doesn't mean it's not occurring. It means just, you know, it's not occurred to anybody to look at it. So absolutely. We can reduce the total amount we have to ventilate because it's so much more efficient to breathe nasally, and that might let us perform better. Yeah. And why should that be such a shock? If this is the way we're designed to breathe, why shouldn't it be more efficient than some way that we're not designed to breathe? Let's move into this question of, well, how to do this. And I think that we ought to, again, start at the top here. It's going to take some time to learn to adapt to nasal breathing. What's your experience been? How long does it take? I'll typically say between six weeks and six months. And here's the big variable, or it's two, really two big variables. The first big variable, some people already are pretty low on sensitivity. Like uh, one of the athletes who, uh, he listened to me talk one time in Pueblo and then came afterwards and, and you know, talked about wanting to do this. He was a, a black belt in karate, a very good local runner yeah. in Pueblo. And, uh, you know, in karate, if you spar, you know, you wear a mouthpiece and, and you get used to doing three-minute, you know, sparring sessions sort of like uh, short intervals, and you're already pretty adapted to nasal breathing, right? Because you have to breathe nasally. Football players, same thing happens with them, boxers. Uh, he, within six weeks, was running a PR for like the last decade, I believe, in the half marathon, breathing nasally. He thought it was the greatest thing that had ever yeah. happened to him. But he was already probably well adapted, okay. uh, probably had uh, a pretty low chemosensitivity because of that other practice, okay. right? On the other end of the spectrum, you know, you get somebody like me who – I, you know, as I look back at my history now, I understand that I was pretty much dominantly a mouth breather. I probably had very high chemosensitivity. I always had some reasonably high anxiety around particularly, you know, people and, you know, being in, in public segments. And, you know, it took me a much longer time. I literally spent most of a year to get to the point where I was fully adapted. But then the second piece that was important is I only did a little bit of this at first. I only did what I could do in my warm up. And, you know, it took me like a couple months before I was even doing like aerobic threshold, you know, yeah. general speed at which you might do a lot of your training work. Uh, but then it started accelerating. Once I got there, I started realizing, you know what, I'm adapting to this. Then it accelerated. And about a year after I started is when I ran those PRs. Okay. So that time course, it has to do with how chemosensitive you are probably in the first place, how well developed your diaphragm is in the first place, you know, where you're really dysfunctional in your breathing. Uh, and it also has to do with how diligently do you want to apply this? Are you going to be impatient as I was and, you know, still unwilling to give away your harder training? Or are you going to be willing to slow down enough so you can do all of your training nasally and then gradually add the intensity? I got you. All right. I want to emphasize that point. We're not saying that you have to slow down permanently. We're saying that you have to slow down temporarily to allow yourself to adapt successfully. You're going to uh, assuming you have no, you know, anatomical limitations, you're going to reach the same or maybe even greater ability level. You just have to do that as a process, just like how we train in the first place. 
it's really no different than the idea that somebody says, I'm going to start to run, so eventually I can run a 10K. That doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. But this business of people have to slow down is only true if they want to adapt as fast as possible. If they want to just keep going and mouth breathe at their highest levels of output, then they're just it's going to slow down their adaptation, but they could do nasal breathing at lower uh, levels of output. Is that right? That's absolutely true. And, you know, there would be some who take the position that, well, this is something I can only do for this kind of training, and that's all I ever want to do. That's a choice, right? Then I keep coming back to that axiom, you know, recognize that the rest of the time you're doing some damage to yourself, to your physiology. Right. But, you know, I might choose to accept that, right? That's your choice. Right. Um, any level at which you do this is probably beneficial. And we do have some studies, uh, including some elements of the studies that I've done, that suggest strongly that even if you just use nasal breathing as part of your training process, some of the changes in how you ventilate, for instance, ventilating more slowly, more diaphragmically, will start to feed back uh, to conditions where you use your mouth. There's, there's one really interesting study that just came out this year that sort of suggests that very strongly. I see. So this would be the case where the guy is uh, nasal breathing and training, but mouth breathing and races? Yes, somebody like that. Somebody might choose to do that. Or they might say, I'm only going to nasal breathe for what, quote, aerobic training. I mean, again, they're all choices. I do want to emphasize you can nasal breathe to do everything. You just have to adapt to doing that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you also, in the process, you know, any combination of that is better than not ever nasal breathing. Right. right? You know, one of the things I would suggest is that we've kind of learned oral breathing even when it's not really necessary. We've Several studies show us that virtually any healthy young person can breathe up to their aerobic threshold and even up to about 80% of uh, VO2 max breathing nasally just by choosing to do that. Um, but most of us will open our mouth as soon as we say, go out for a run. Yeah. We might not have to, but we just do it, right? It's like yeah. we associate it with that activity. So it's just a learned behavior. Yeah, it's a habit. Okay, so I, I wanted to summarize the parts of the adaptation and then I, I wanted you to then go through, you know, what was this process that you recommended? But the f I ended up with uh, three things, maybe three and a half things here. The first one is you've got to reduce your sensitivity to CO2. Uh, and the reason that you have a high sensitivity to it, if, if you're a mouth breather, is that you've been mouth breathing. And so right. your CO2 levels have been artificially lowered by that. And so that's what your body is used to. And it doesn't like it when it goes above that. But it's fine to be above that. You just have to get your body used to that. That's exactly right. That, uh, I, I hesitate with used to. It goes away. Right? Yeah. I, I always want to emphasize this point. You don't have to deal with this or, or tolerate it or get used to it. It just goes away. You just have to expose yourself enough to it. And Great. it goes away. Great. Okay. The second thing then is, if you haven't been using your nasal passages properly, then they are not in good shape and you're going to have to get control over them. And there are things you can do mechanically. And then there are practices you can use to learn how to condition your nasal passages and learn how to open them so that you can breathe properly. Uh, I don't know if you want to mention a couple of those here and then we can move on to the last thing. Sure. You know, there's some muscular adaptation that's likely to have to occur, particularly at the higher levels of work where you've, you know, never breathed nasally before. One of those is in the, the nares, uh, the, the flare of your nose. You know, you actually have small muscles that allow your nose to flare when you, you, know, right. you want to breathe at a higher volume. One of the things I remember experiencing is that I would, I would get fatigued 
I associated this with dehydration and my, na- my nasal passage would almost like collapse, right? Yeah. After, you know, some period of time, eventually that went away because it's still a muscular response, right? You're actually training those little bit, little bit of muscles. Oh, that's funny. What I found was that if I used an external uh, dilator, right, a strip, yeah. right, that that prevented that from happening. Oh. And then over time, I didn't really need to use one of those at all. That's interesting. Um, there's a whole complicated idea about how these various internal dilators can assist us uh, all the way to the point where um, there's some forms of internal dilators, which are really medical devices, that stint both the external valve, the one we're used to where like there's a either tape on the outside or something internal that's like right. a little ring. Uh, there are actually dilators that stint that valve as well as the deeper internal valve essentially they're like a net that goes in and, and expands and opens up the airway all the way back into the esophagus pretty much. Uh, and, you know, using that sort of device, there's at least one study that shows that you could literally perform the same work immediately breathing nasally with that kind of stent that you could perform breathing orally. So you may, you know, there's some continuum of that, how you'd want to use yeah. that, right? Depending on how comfortable okay. you were. Uh, and, and a whole discussion about when and when right. not to. Uh, the second piece is the diaphragm itself, right? Once we're uh, highly trained, particularly breathing orally, and, you know, we do have a sort of a chest-dominated approach to breathing, we really don't use our, our diaphragm adequately. As soon as we breathe nasally, it's sort of like putting yourself into a bigger gear on a bicycle. You know, you'll adapt to it. You just have to start doing it and recognize at first, you know, you won't be able to turn that gear for sure, long, sure. right? And then over time, you'll get stronger, that muscle will get stronger and more more conditioned to the to the way that you're breathing now at a kind of a lower frequency but with more more force. And you know that adaptation is probably the slowest part of how somebody adapts to nasal breathing because it's just like getting stronger in weight training. It you know there's some amount of time that it takes. It's not a thing that happens really quickly. Yeah. Sensitization and chemo to CO two levels that changes fairly quickly, and you just have to keep stepping it up to higher and higher levels. Right. Um, the, the diaphragmic activation is, again, sort of like getting stronger through interval training to run or in the weight room. You know, it's just a slower, slightly slower process. Yeah. But it still happens, right? right? If, you're, if you recognize that that's what's going on and you proceed slowly, you know, three months, it's not unreasonable that most people could get where they could literally do almost all their work in three months. Certainly by six months. Took me a year because I didn't know what I was doing. I was making it up as I went. And you didn't know what was possible either. So you weren't pushing it. No, it's totally experiment. You also mentioned that you recommend using a neti pod or something like that. So one of the things that, uh, you know, when I sort of had this open out of the box experience uh, that I thought about was that, okay, if I'm going to start moving all this air through my nose, right, and and I'm going to hit all these uh, uh, conditioning apparatus or elements of the nose, you know, there's a potential for overwhelming that, just like we overwhelm the lung when we try to breathe through our mouth. Uh, and so, you know, one of the ways that we can overwhelm that is through the idea that initially, uh, you know, you may experience this as a allergic response kind of stimulus. So your body's not used to you breathing a lot through your nose. So, you know, you produce a lot of mucus in response to that. Sure. I can absolutely remember the first uh, months of doing this. I was producing so much mucus. That when I ran inside on a treadmill, you know, I literally had to make sure I had something there so that I wouldn't offend the people around me because I was constantly <laughs> having to blow my nose. Over time, that diminished. And, you know, now, literally, I never produce any, I never carry any with me, never really produce, you know, excess mucus where I have to blow my nose when I'm out running, et cetera. But so that, that idea 
tells us that, you know, we can overwhelm this conditioning system too. And so the basic threat is that we'll produce a lot more mucus, accumulate more mucus in our, in our sinuses. And of course, when we do that, that means whatever particular matter, pathogens, et cetera, they're in your sinuses. This is really where sinus infections come from. Mm. So, you know, right away, I also started using a neti pot every day. Well, I like brushing your teeth, not using a neti pot the way they're typically studied and used once you get sick, just using it every day to keep my nasal passage clearing. Now, I would really emphasize this. I just convinced my oldest brother maybe six months ago to use neti pot. And here's the most important thing I said to him. This is going to be horrible at first, right? The first time you go to use a neti pot, you've got all this material in your sinuses. You have, you have no realization of that. That water can barely go through, right? And so you're going to be choking. It's going to go down your throat. And you just have to persist. Over a day or two, you'll, you'll start to get water to go through there. And within about two weeks, you'll largely clear that out if you use it every day, even like once every day. And then before you know it, you know, it's 10 seconds. Just drains through. Go to the other nostril, 10 seconds. The whole thing maybe takes you a minute or two, right? Uh, so that does two things. It helps you to continually clear out that excess mucus you're going to be creating because you are breathing. You know, you're exposing your nose to a lot more stimuli than it usually gets. Uh, and it also helps you to keep that nasal passage moist, right? So that you, you know, like I typically use my neti pot before I go to train in the morning so that my nose is moist and I can feel that I'm breathing easily through my nose, right? I, I favor that quite a bit. So you don't have to use it excessively. Um, pretty much I do this once a day. It takes me about a minute. Um, there's the water prep and that's another uh, discussion, but, um, uh, and result of that combined with the idea that I now try to breathe through my nose literally all the time, so just seem to never get sick. Well, and I'll tell you, my experience is that it is a terrible thing when you first start doing it the first few times, but after a while, it's a wonderful thing. You, you just feel clean. I mean, it's like brushing your teeth. You just, you don't want to not do it after you're used to doing it. What, what's the mindset to have? How hard should I be trying to exercise while I'm nasal breathing so that I don't, you know, give myself a psychological problem or, or give up? Here's my suggestion. You know, in the modern era, most of us who exercise on at least on occasion, go inside, get on a treadmill. If you're a walker runner, you get on a a bike, a stationary bike. My suggestion is to try this initially. Get on whatever indoor device you have. If you if you have a heart rate monitor, great. Uh, and then go at the slowest speed you can get yourself away slower than you used to to going and breathe nasally. And then every three minutes or so, just increase that a little bit. Like on a treadmill, if I start at one mile per hour, maybe I'll go to one and a half, then to two, two and a half. Or if I'm a runner, maybe I start at like four or five miles per hour, increase it a half mile per hour. And keep registering in your brain or, or even write it down. That's always better. You know, just how much air hunger you feel. We use this little scale, seven. It's like being held underwater. You're going to drown. One, just normal like we are right now, even though – and you, you can be running and still at one, right? You're getting the, the amount of air that is normal for that condition. And that will help you to figure out where you start to experience air hunger. And then what I would suggest is that you go just a little below that, right? Just at that threshold – and, and slow running down to that threshold and train that way and come back to that sort of way of assessing yourself every week or two. And you'll start to see that you can go a little further. And then that translates back into, you know, what you call your prescription. Now go a little faster breathing nasally. And by regularly monitoring how far you're going, eventually you'll start going to work that's pretty hard, right? 
And eventually, if you do it long enough and keep this process going, you'll start to reach your maximum, right? You'll, you'll go as fast as you can actually go. What we call, as physiologists, we call that a graded exercise test. So uh, the other piece about that is, you know, that's actually a very good way to warm up anyway. You know, one of the big mistakes people make in exercise is that they start too fast. We all benefit. Like the Kenyans, they start out running 12-minute miles. These are guys who can run 430s, five-minute miles, you know, comfortably. Right, they're running marathon paces beyond that. Um, but they start running at ridiculously slow paces. And that's what all really well-versed runners or, or cyclists do. We start very, very slow. So, you know, this is also a good practice in teaching yourself a better way to warm up. You just start very slow and gradually increasing stages. And it gives you a way to start to see how fast you can really go where you might have just a minimum sensation of some air hunger, but not anything that's going to make it where that exercise becomes onerous, right? And again, that will go away. And as it goes away, you'll be able to go a little faster and a little faster over weeks to months. That's terrific. Is there anything like a metric that people could use? I mean, is it HRV? Is it uh, like uh, using some sort of a monitor for how many breaths they're taking a minute? Like, cause I know like whoop straps and aura rings track actually using your heart rate. They, they track what your uh, respiration rate is. Uh, do you, you recommend anything that, so people can just tell whether they're getting better or not? Well, I would mostly, again, focus on the ability to simply use that breathing route. Um, there yeah. are respiratory uh, rate monitors now. That's actually a, an emerging concept. People are using that as a as a way to sort of guide exercise intensity versus, say, heart rate or you know lactates or things like that. Um, but they're not common yet, and I personally have never seen one. Right? That yeah. you know, an easy to use monitor that measures respiratory rate. Um, we measure it using the same metabolic cards we measure the other stuff with. So, again, I would focus back on this simple idea. Uh, if you put a little water in your mouth so that you don't have to think about nasal breathing, and then your main metric that determines success is I can do this. Now I can do it a little faster, right? That's all to the good. If you're a person who likes to measure heart rate, one of the things a lot of people experience, and I did, I experienced this at first, was all of a sudden your heart rates will be lower. Now, that seems to stabilize over time. And in our study with adapted breathers, they actually produce basically the same heart rates nasally as orally at the same work levels. But that's a common observational thing. Uh, and uh, a thing I've heard many, you know, people who have done this for a while say that they remember experiencing. And I definitely did, right? And one of the things that was astounding to me when I started to do this, for me to get my heart rate under 150 and be running was literally impossible. And all of a sudden, I was getting heart rates in the 130s. Um, that changes over time, but in general, uh, in my experience, my heart rates have never gone back to where they used to be when I ran. Yeah, I'm, you know, even running as fast as I would have run at those times. So I mean, the heart rate thing is interesting, but the main metric is simply that you can do it and that you start being able to do it faster at faster paces or higher power outputs, et cetera. Um, a lot of times people think of the end game being to reduce your respiratory rate as much as possible. I don't really see it that way. I see that as an actual outcome of nasal breathing, not the objective itself, right? The objective is simply to be able to do it. The outcome is that you'll end up breathing slower and you'll end up ventilating less. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I would look at it. There's an awful lot uh, of stuff out there now about various strategies, et cetera. To me, this is a relatively simple concept. We're just better off breathing nasally. We need to figure out the level at which we can do that and not make it unduly uncomfortable and then gradually increase that over time. 
as the, as it becomes possible for us to do that. Really, the way that we should all exercise, <laughs> you know, if we're not yeah. immediately competing, etc. So we're just gradually increasing it until we can do anything nasal yeah. breathing. Yep. Well, that's great, George. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Joe. Is there some way you would like people to um, find you or or reach out to you? Do you have a website or something like that? If you're interested in the science on this, um, my last name is D-A-L-L-A-M, which is an old English name and very uncommon. So if you combine them with my first name, you'll find your way to the science in Google Scholar pretty easily or just Dallum and, and Maisel. So we've done uh, a, a case study, a group study. Uh, a colleague and I wrote a review paper on the topic. Really, there's only about 20 experimental studies on this. And right now, I'm on sabbatical. So right now, I'm writing a book on this. And likely, that'll publish somewhere, hopefully, later in the spring, right? I'm hoping to get into the spring semester with the basic draft written and then, you know, work, work publishing. Um, and so I would just do that, right? I would, if, if you're interested in these ideas, in particular, the group study, which has been reported a lot in the media, it's the important one because it's shown us that it's possible to adapt to this. No one else had ever even looked at that concept. You know, basically the science just showed us that we could do some level of nasal breathing and showed us that we absolutely couldn't do a maximum level. But what we've illustrated is the idea that, you know, you can actually adapt to doing this where you don't have to, to give away any work capacity. We also demonstrated, uh, you know, that in a person who had existing EIB, that they were able to rectify that with, you know, essentially make it go away when they were breathing nasally and achieve the same kind of max. Uh, and that was your personal experience, right? That was my personal experience. Yes, that's true. Well, that's fantastic. All right, George. Well, this has been so educational. You have a great day. Okay, you too, John. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this bonus edition of my conversation with George Dallum on nasal breathing. If you'd like to know more, be sure to check out the full discussion in episode 50, including the show notes that contain a ton of useful details. You can find episode 50 at wiseathletes.com.